Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thanks for your company again. As you know, it's easy to watch. Tell your friends to visit the adh.tv website and they then click, as you have, the Watch Now button where you can watch Alan Jones live and on demand. Remember, it's free. Tonight on the program is Angus Taylor, the Minister for Industry, Energy and Emissions Reduction. I can say this, Angus does his best, but there's only one of him in what's an increasingly left-wing Liberal Party obsessed with climate change. Someone who turned their back on this lurch to the left is the former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman. He's running as lead Senate candidate for the Liberal Democrats in Queensland. I'll speak to him tonight. And another issue we'll look at is this public funding of election campaigns. I've spoken about this before. For major parties and candidates who gain more than 4% of the primary vote, they receive your money, $10,656 in cash and $2.914 for every vote. Work that out. It runs into millions of dollars of your money. That advertising you see on TV, you're paying for it. Michael Yabsley was a minister in the Griner government. He's a former federal treasurer of the Liberal Party. He's doing his best to raise awareness of this issue and has written a column on ADH.TV, one of many columns you can read by going to the website. Who can forget in 2016 when the insufferable oak shot ran in the seat of Cowper? as he tries to do at each election, and received $71,477 in public funding, your money, for a bloke not worth a single vote. But he, like many others, give it a go at each election and we mug taxpayers shell out for failed candidates like Oakshot. Anyway, all that's coming up. And don't forget, you can always have your say. Just email Jones at adh.tv. Well, it's May 16. The maths make it five days until the nation makes a critical decision. At the centre of that decision are these so-called teal independents. There are only two conclusions you can draw. They are either dumb or they think we are dumb. Just to settle one point about this ridiculous name, it's about the only thing original in the whole Zali Stegall profile. Teal is a mix of blue and green. She'd have you believe that blue represents traditional conservative values and green the environment. And that's about where a sensible explanation of this lot begins and ends. Make no mistake, what they're on about, these teal independents, will have zero impact on Saturday on the ability of Labor to win the election. They are just a diversionary outfit which, at best, will only determine how badly the coalition loses. And if it's not a hung parliament, Labor won't need their support. If Labor has a clear majority, then the teals won't have to choose who they'll support. In other words, They'll be politically impotent. But what is more, they'll be sitting in blue ribbon Liberal seats trying to deliver a Labor government. I'll tell you something, they might win this time, and I'm not certain they will, but they sure as hell won't win next time. Ask Windsor and Oakshot, representing exclusively Conservative seats and backing Gillard, who were never heard from again. So they're about climate change, are they, this lot? What would they know? The green of the teal represents the environment. Well, the bad news is, if greenhouse gas emissions are the problem, they will continue to rise in the future no matter what Australia does. If the problem is carbon dioxide emissions, they are 0.04% of the atmosphere. 
Human beings worldwide are responsible for 3% of that. And little old Australia, 1.3% of all of that, if your maths are up to it. All this climate change stuff by the teals is a meaningless gesture. And of course, while China, Indonesia, India and other parts of Africa and Asia plough on, our percentage contribution by 2030 is likely to be well below 1%. These teal people are either dumb or duplicitous, in which case they can't be forgiven. We emit 433 million tonnes of carbon dioxide every year. China emits 25 times that amount. In other words, each year we emit a fortnight's worth of China's emissions. If these teal independents can't tell the electorate the truth, then they deserve not a single vote. But of course, they're all from wealthy suburbs and they're going to save the planet. Idiocy has never so taken over the political process. But if this blind pursuit to get rid of fossil fuels leads to factories closing, power prices going through the roof, what will it matter to these wealthy lot? Or will they be able to cash in on the taxpayer-subsidised renewable energy push? Of course, these teals have a right to run in an election, but they have no right to fiddle with the truth. I suspect the coalition, as I warned at the time of Glasgow, can't attack the teal independence because the coalition has signed up to the same rubbish, net zero emissions by 2050. And what a joke is this New South Wales Treasurer Keane writing to people in the teal seats, telling them not to vote for the teals, that they are articulating the very rubbish that Keane has been feeding us with for months and months. Keane is your ultimate teal. And in the days remaining, will this teal bunch of entitled elites articulate policies on issues that are affecting ordinary Australians every day? We know they hate fossil fuels, but they spend their life on their smartphones produced with fossil fuels. They're gung-ho about renewables, but never talk about nuclear. But I suppose in their world of protected privilege, why should they care about the person on Struggle Street? Why should they care about standards of education, national security, energy prices going up, energy poverty for some, just paying the bills and staying warm? They, of course, are not the concerns of this privileged teal elite. As one writer said at the weekend, you can't feed your kids or pay your mortgage by shouting climate change every five minutes. No sensible voter can surely support an outfit which is a single issue proposition. Climate change and then something about an integrity commission. And the third, well, I've forgotten because you can't waste your time with irrelevance. And if they're all supported by this Climate 200 mob, one simple question is valid. What links do the Climate 200 board members have with renewable energy? Indeed, if Malcolm Turnbull seems to support the teal independence, what are his links to renewable energy? Who's going to stand in the public place and tell these unfashionable fakes that Australia can't and never will be able to change the global climate? Stop treating us like fools. Stop the political grandstanding and virtue signalling, because I'll tell you something, come Saturday, the teal independents might win once, but they'll never win again. I said at the beginning, they're either dumb or they think we're dumb. Because if there's any person out there who thinks that someone in Kuyong or Wentworth or Warringah is going to save the planet, then I say simply they're idiots. But they shouldn't be allowed to treat us like idiots. Between now and Saturday, I'll put a microscope over this lot and they will be found wanting. Well, it's not just the teals. This obsession with climate policy continues. Election after election has been lost by the party articulating punitive climate change policy. 
As I just said, China emits 25 times more carbon dioxide than does Australia. And as I just said, each year we emit a fortnight's worth of China's emissions. I suspect the coalition can't attack the teal independence because the coalition has signed up to the same rubbish, net zero by 2050. But it's more disturbing than that. You've got the former lefty, who was once head of Treasury and the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Martin Parkinson, talking about bringing business, unions, farmers and environmental groups together to coordinate a whole-of-economy approach to reducing carbon emissions more rapidly. I think he means carbon dioxide. We then learn his view was broadly shared by 10 leading Australian scientists, all of whom ranked the coalition last on climate policy after Labor, Greens and the independents. That may be a badge of honour. Many of these scientists are on the payroll of government. Labor says it will reduce carbon dioxide emissions by 43% on 2005 levels by 2050. I'm telling you now, it cannot be done. Now, the coalition at least has been more sensible and is talking 26 to 28%, but almost without shame, commentators are admitting, and I quote, the presumption being the ALP will win, will see more demand for carbon credits and higher prices, unquote. Well, Angus Taylor is a coalition front bencher with a lot of ability. He's also the energy minister. He joins me. Angus, thank you for your time. Look, just a couple of preliminary questions. Why would top scientists, as the headline suggests, back Labor on climate policy? Well, Alan, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, and Labor is the, the party of big government. Uh, and these scientists very often rely on big government for, for their funding. So. It's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen some of the commentary from some that makes absolutely no sense. Mm. Um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to focus on the facts and you've got to focus on the yeah. reality here, well, it, not on, on business. Absolutely. Bite the hand that feeds you. Anthony Albanese says in Gladstone that he'll kickstart battery manufacturing and he wants to build a $100 million battery manufacturing precinct in central Queensland. Now, batteries don't make energy. They only store it. So is he going to, in central Queensland, store energy from coal production? I thought they wanted to eliminate coal production. Well, and, and this is where I see Labor's policy just lacks any real rigour. It's, it's rhetorical. It's not substantive, Alan. And, uh, and all it will do is, is raise costs. And we see this in their, in their transmission policies. They're adding $78 billion of costs and they're not explaining who's going to pay for it. And this is how labour always works. You're absolutely right. Um, batteries are storage. And, uh, of course, if you're going to reduce emissions, it's not the storage uh, that's the issue. So uh, this is labour, as always, going with the rhetoric, uh, going with what's fashionable, not going with what's actually going to well, help look, have uh, affordable, uh, reliable, sustainable yeah. energy. See, I, I note the commentary that we're going to see more demand for carbon credits. I mean, no-one's picked this up and higher prices per unit. Isn't this a carbon tax? Well, it is when you have an aggressive reduction required from industry, and that is exactly what Labor mm -hmm. is doing with their policy. Um, they are, are requiring a very significant reduction in emissions in the top 200 businesses across Australia. 215? Uh, and that becomes mm -hmm. carbon tax. That becomes a carbon tax. It's very yeah. simple, though. I mean, there's this safeguard mechanism introduced by Greg Hunt, part of the Abbott government, and that, as it stands, relates to facilities that emit more than 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. Now, if they emit more than 100,000 tonnes, won't these companies have to buy 
permits to cover the excess emissions. And I ask again, isn't that a carbon tax? Well, well, that's right. That's exactly right, Alan. Page 23 of their policy says that it will eliminate uh, over 200 million tonnes or contribute to the elimination of over 200 million tonnes of emissions. Um, and uh, if you have a price, which, as you've said, um, commentators expect to go up under Labor's policies because they'll need a lot of these credits. If you have a price of $40 or more, you're talking well over five, six, seven billion dollars of costs you're adding yep. in this to is true. industry. And these are industries that have to compete yep. internationally. Yep, this um, is true. And they can't compete if their costs are right. I mean, they are targeting, no one has been picking this up, they're targeting 215 companies, and they name it unashamedly nationwide that have exceeded the 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent limit. And the Labor policy says, quote, the safeguard mechanism supported by National Reconstruction Fund financing is projected to deliver 213 million tonnes of carbon abatement between 2023 and 2030. That's page 23, by the way, of their policy. Now, this NRF is similar to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, so $3 billion worth of funding will achieve 24 million tonnes of carbon abatement. OK, terrific. But that leaves 189 million tonnes of emissions reduction to be achieved. Now, at the 2021 average cost of 40 bucks for a carbon credit, that's a tax on business of $7.56 billion. I ask again, it, what is this if it's not a carbon tax? Well, it is a carbon tax. Make no mistake about it. And this is typical Labor policy. Ultimately, uh, they're, they're obsessed with jobs in white-collar industries. There's no problem with jobs in white-collar industries. I want to see more of them. But they show no empathy for jobs in these blue-collar industries when it comes to their substantive policy. Uh, they simply don't care. They're trying to talk a big game about how they care, but their policies betray that. But see, Joel um, Fitzgibbon... This is the typical... Joel Fitzgibbon has described the safeguard mechanism. This is a former Labor member as, quote, a carbon constraint or a carbon tax or whatever you might like to call it. I mean, Joel Fitzgibbon, mm. won't companies have to close or go overseas to cheaper jurisdictions? Well, there's two types of businesses that are within that 213. Those who are trade exposed, that means they compete internationally yep. with imports or they have to export, and those who are not. Now, Labor are very unclear as to whether the trade exposed industries are going to be excluded. You've got Chris Bowen saying, uh, that coal mines, for instance, will be included. They're going to pay the tax. Yep. And you've got Pat Conroy uh, up there near the Hunter Valley saying uh, they're going to be exempted. We don't know which. But I tell you what, if they have to pay the tax, those industries are going to be have a big cost imposed on them, which they can't afford because they have to compete. If they are exempted, we're all going to pay the cost in what we pay for our domestic goods, transport, airlines, they're the ones that will be hit hard. So one way or another, someone always has to pay for Labor's policy. Quite. Now. I mean, look, I'm um, saying... Uh, Labor, Labor's trying to get away with this. I'm saying Labor can't walk both sides of the street. Of the 215 companies, 210 are trade exposed. Coal mines, gas projects, steelmakers, aluminium smelters. So if you give favourable, tailored treatment to trade exposed companies, you've got no climate change policy, no emissions reductions. Well, that's exactly that's exactly right. What you do is you take an aluminium smelter, which is a very good example, so the Tomago aluminium smelter, it shuts because it can't compete because you've imposed extra costs on it. 
uh, and then it goes to Western China, where all the new smelters are being built. And guess how it's powered now? Coal. That's how they power smelters in Western China. So you, you, you've, you've sent the emissions to China in an electricity grid that has higher emissions, by the way, yep. than ours, yep. um, and you've lost the jobs from Australia. That that's where but, labor always goes. We but I mean, saw they, it when they were last. They're going to squeeze. They're going to, they're going to squeeze business on emissions, tighten them each year to meet this forty-three percent in eight years' time. I mean, China are cheering. This policy helps China create jobs at our expense. It forces companies that are responsible for a third of Australia's emissions to go net zero or pay huge amounts of money in carbon credits. Angus, this has got to cost jobs in industries where there is no substitutable emission-free technology. That's exactly right. And, and that's why we've always said, if there's no substitutable emission-free technology, you shouldn't shut these industries. Um, they should be allowed to continue to export and to provide the services to customers they have for a long time, Alan. But, you know, the, the, the conventional approach to reducing emissions that left-wing parties across the world always adopt is to send... Uh, those manufacturing businesses offshore Overseas. to another country, Overseas. typically to China. Typically but I mean, won't regional Australia? Yeah, won't regional you know, Australia? Sorry, sorry. Emissions have gone up sixty-five percent yeah, yeah. since two thousand five. You talked about their absolute level of emissions. Yeah. Absolutely right. But it's gone up by sixty-five percent in the time when ours have gone down by twenty percent. Mm. Now, uh, you know, China. China is becoming a factory to places like Europe very happily uh, because it doesn't have any carbon constraints. So no. we're never going to adopt the policies no. that descends... But won't regional Australia bear the brunt of this job-destroying stuff? I mean, this is where the bulk of our resource sector and much of our manufacturing is located. I mean, there aren't many coal mines and gas wells in the gentrified inner-city areas of Kuyong and Wentworth and, and Moringah where both parties are trying to win votes on climate change. I mean, where's the old Labor that used to fight for the blue-collar job? You know, in the last month or so, Alan, I've been to places like Wyala, steel-making, of course, uh, to Illumina refineries in southwestern Western Australia. Um, in, in Andrew Hastie's electorate, there's, there's a number of them there. Um, lots of jobs, lots of jobs for Australians. Um, uh, of course, steel in, in the Illawarra. Um, up in the Hunter Valley, uh, which of course is you know a, a very traditional manufacturing area with with businesses like the Tomago Aluminium Smelter, these are the ones that go when you get the policies wrong. Uh, it's not people in the inner cities who lose their jobs. No, it's people in the regions. The Hunter Valley, seventy-five thousand uh, coal-related jobs. Hunter Valley, seventy-five thousand coal-related jobs. This policy will destroy many of them. I mean, one wag suggested to me the only new thing Labor will be building in the Hunter Valley is Centrelink offices. I mean, it is extraordinary when you look at the cost to business. I mean, in the Hunter Valley, for example, I just did some figures. Outfits like the Bengala Coal Operation will be up for $17.6 million. The Centennial Mandalong Mine, $42.4 million, because they've got to buy carbon credits if they exceed 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions. Coal and Allied at Warkworth, $27.9 million. The Hunter Valley Operations Mine, 18.5 million. Orica on Kuragrang Island, 43.4 million. The Tomago Aluminium Smelter, well, forget it, 44.2 million. Uh, there's only about a couple of days to go, Angus. How are these points going to be made to the wider electorate? 
Well, I'm making to them, them to you today, Alan. We're talking to people right through regional Australia about this. I've been doing that in, in recent weeks, um, and as have colleagues um, in, in these regions, in central Queensland, in the Hunter Valley, uh, and we'll, in, in South Australia. We'll continue to talk about the importance of this. The truth is there's some in the mainstream media who are not interested mm. in talking mm. about these, no. these issues. Um, but, but we won't stop, Alan, Good because the you. points you make are absolutely right. Good on you, Angus. Good to talk to you. Thank you for the work you do. This bloke's exhausted. I think he's been to 10 electorates in the last couple of days and nightmare stuff. I'll just make one further point. Blue Scope Steel, if they have to pay an average of $40 for a carbon credit because they exceed 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions, Blue Scope Steel will be up for an annual bill of $240 million. Will they stay here or go overseas? Angus Taylor, thank you for your time. Much appreciated and all the best in the next five days. Thanks, Alan. There he is, the Energy Minister, Angus Taylor. Well, my thanks to my viewers for your responses to the program. One viewer sent me an email which caught my attention, in which he said, and I quote, since the days of Joseph in ancient Egypt, droughts have periodically rationed water and food supplies for human beings and wildlife. Sensible people store water, but it's about 40 years since Australia built a big dam. Young Aussie engineers, a play on words here, he said, have no damn experience. Foolish children and green politicians, writes my viewer, think that floods are caused by carbon dioxide. But farmers know that it's La Nina that brings flooding rains to eastern Australia. As he correctly says, quote, right now La Nina flood water is pouring down rivers like the Herbert, Burdekin, Pioneer, Fitzroy, Dawson, Mary, Marucci, Condamine, Bremer, Brisbane, Richmond, Clarence, Maclay, Goulburn, Snowy and the mighty Murray-Darling. And our few dams, he says, and weirs are now spilling too much water. Unquote. Now, of course, all that is allowed to flow into the ocean, where we'll then desalinate it <laughs> to bring it back on shore. Is it a rumour or reality that we're mad? My viewer continues, and I quote, Climate cycles will change, and El Nino droughts, like the Federation drought and the Millennium drought, will come again. When that happens, we'll again find rivers dry, wetlands parched, crops desecrated and water rationed because we didn't store enough La Nina water." Unquote. Well, another of my viewers made reference to the Burdigan Falls Dam, completed in 1987 at a cost of $125 million. Why didn't we build more dams then at that price? It was built to harness the mighty Burdigan River in North Queensland which drains a water catchment comprising 7% of the state. Today, Burdigan Falls Dam on Lake Dalrymple is the largest water storage asset in Queensland. However, during the recent La Nina, water cascaded over the dam's spillway. How much? Well, let me put it this way. The Burrunjuk Dam is almost four hours from Sydney. Construction of the dam began in 1909. The Burrunjuk Dam holds over a million megalitres of water, twice as much as Sydney Harbour, and it covers an area greater than 8,000 football fields. OK, back to the Burdekin Falls Dam in North Queensland. How much water cascaded over the dam's spillway recently? Remember Burrunjuk Dam? Twice the capacity of Sydney Harbour. Well, the water cascading over the spillway of Burdekin Dam is sufficient to fill the Burrunjuk Dam from empty every two days. As Ron wrote to me with the certain truth 
The roar of this cascading water is the roar of waste. We can avoid this flooding, he wrote. We can store this water for later use. We can use it to produce cheap, clean power and vastly increase productivity over the Burdekin Basin. With vision and planning, he wrote, we can use it to drought-proof much of central and western Queensland. But the further point was this. Expenditure on water conservation and hydropower returns both direct and indirect income to government for the foreseeable future. And the jobs generated are tax-paying jobs, not taxpayer-funded jobs, like those created by never-ending subsidies and targets designed to force-feed renewable energy in a doomed attempt to limit global warming. As Ron writes, conserving flood flows in increased water storage is a win for the environment, a win for the government, and a win for regional communities. If we want water in drought times, he said, we must harvest the floods. Well, the rain keeps coming down, doesn't it? But hardly any of it is being harvested. Well, may we say, the sound of the rain falling is certainly the roar of waste. Well, if, as the polls suggest, Anthony Albanese will be Prime Minister this time next week, it won't be hard for genuine Liberal supporters to understand why cracks have appeared in the foundations of the Liberal Party. Last year, Campbell Newman resigned from the party. He's now standing for the Senate in Queensland for the Liberal Democrats. Why is he an outstanding candidate? Well, the answer is simple. He can articulate what the Liberal Party once stood for, but now doesn't. In resigning from the Liberal Party, Campbell Newman said the party had, quote, failed to stand up for our core values of fiscal responsibility, smaller government, support for small business, the elimination of red tape and the defence of free speech and liberty, unquote. He said keeping people safe and keeping people free are not mutually exclusive even in a pandemic. Campbell Newman is a fiscal conservative par excellence and a liberal on key social issues. John Howard was able to keep his broad church, the conservative and liberal wings of the party together, so did Tony Abbott. They enjoyed resounding political success. But we've reached a point in national discourse where people don't feel free to air their grievances, and that includes MPs, and they don't feel confident that their views on behalf of voters have been heard. I speak to a lot of, at a lot of functions. I ask people to raise their hand if they really feel confident and free to express their opinion, barely a hand goes up. You can't make policy progress or intellectual progress without the spirited exchange of ideas and without regarding someone with whom you disagree as the enemy. Campbell Newman joins, Campbell Newman joins me. Campbell, thank you for your time. How is the Senate campaign going? <laughs> well, Alan, we're giving it our best shot. I guess one of the most surprising things, if you'd asked me... Uh, uh, about this uh, some months ago, I'd have said, well, surely a, a former Premier and Lord Mayor would get a bit of airtime in the mainstream media. But here in South East Queensland, that's been our biggest challenge, to be honest. And I'm not whinging about it. When I've gone regionally, we get great coverage. People are interested to hear about the Lib Dems and our policies, mm. particularly when we're talking about dams and irrigation schemes or fighting to deal with telco black spots. But here in South East Queensland, the media don't seem to care. And I, I think that's part of the problem with now, the media don't want to cover, uh, you know, the, the fundamental issues that Australia faces. Or, they just want to have a, a, a duopoly sort of debating. Or they might have, there might uh, be an agenda, Campbell. There might be an agenda. I mean, the points you highlighted be, in yeah. your resignation from the party, those points must be addressed. I mean, sometimes people only repair the house after it's been burnt down. The Matt Keens 
of the party, would have you believe oh. that the party should move further to left. And that belief has most probably well, pitchforked Labor into government, hasn't it? Look, that, that's delusional stuff from Keane. Look, the problem is um, that the Liberal Party don't represent uh, their values. If you go to their website uh, and you can download the Statement of Principles and Values and then go through and you can find out very clearly, Alan, they're not standing up for small business. Uh, we've got a yawning deficit this year. It's about $79 billion. It actually could have been $20 billion lower if Frydenberg had actually not started to spend the windfall gains from, you know, our vibrant export economy. I mean, you know, the debt of Australia is going to go up 37% by 2025 under this government. And we've then got inflation. And I put to you this evening the reason for inflation is because, yes, some of it's imported, but it's also because of reckless spending. Quiet. If you're a Keynesian, you'd Quiet. know that you should be, you'd, you'd have the view that you should be cutting back when you've got a mini boom, which we have now. Higher inflation is as a result of profligate government spending and an RBA, which has been asleep at the wheel. And the result now is higher interest rates. So mm. you know, it, it is a sad state of affairs when a, a coalition government uh, has gone this direction. And surely the risk to a once proud Liberal Party is not losing a couple of wealthy seats to the Green left, but losing quiet Australians who believe the party has lost its way. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, Alan, really, I shouldn't be playing the role of political commentator. That's your job. But the splintering to uh, parties like the Lib Dems or Pauline Hanson's One Nation uh, or Clive Palmer can be laid at the feet of these people like the Matt Keynes of this world or the Zimmermans or the Julian Simmons in Brisbane or the Trevor Evans in Brisbane, mm. uh, Tim Wilson in, in Victoria mm. and even Frydenberg. I, I just don't know why these people don't get it, but they're the ones that cause the problem. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm afeared that this weekend we're going to see uh, the Labor Party elected and we will then put up with a terrible Labor government who will be even worse. I, I give you that. But that is no argument to actually, you know, to support Scott Morrison and the coalition no, uh, when they I, have I saw so you, abandoned what they're meant to stand for. I saw you on a panel with Pauline Hanson, uh, yourself, uh, Bob Catter and Clive Palmer. And I thought you oh, made the God. most outstanding comment in all of that night in the debate because you said, just have a look at the four of us here at the table, Clive Palmer, Campbell Newman, Bob Catter and Pauline Hanson, we were all in the Liberal Party once. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it it, uh, it, it just shows uh, how far they have departed from the things that the, the quiet Australians really believe in. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm in business, Alan, and I have been in business now for seven years since uh, I lost office. And yet I have seen, uh, and I'm in the financial services sector, I've seen more red tape and regulation. Let me give you a, a, an example of something that came across my desk in the last 24 years, 24 hours. The Australian Independent Association of Financial Professionals who look after financial advisors have uh, commissioned some work some academics have done looking into the impacts of the supposed reforms after the Hain Royal Commission. And here's the bottom line. Alan, thousands of financial advisors have left the industry. Um, the cost of financial advice for, you know, for middle Australia and the less well-off is prohibitive, and so those people can't get financial advice. There's even been, I think, about 15 to 18 suicides, sadly, of financial advisors who just can't cope with the red tape that Jane Hume and Josh Frydenberg have thrown at them. I mean, Frydenberg's response to Hain 
has been an outrage because, again, those who need financial advice can't get it. Um, the well-off, they can afford it, and they're not impacted. It, it's just an extraordinary mm. supposed response. See, now, this, this is a, from a Liberal government. And financial advisors tend to be SMEs. They tend to be small businesses. Yeah. Uh, and they've been impacted most negatively. See, at the last election, Scott Morrison was strong and he was right when he said Labor's 45% cut in emissions by 2030 was economy wrecking. He won. He mm. defended mining and he defended heavy industry. In fact, Scott Morrison won the election because of the government's strong defence of the mining sector in regional Queensland and WA, assisted by the Nationals attacking the Greens' anti-Adani campaign. Now, the Labor Party were quick to wake up to what cost them the election, and the Queensland Labor government gave all of the Adani mine approvals. Now, in every election up until now, the coalition have put jobs ahead of emission reductions. What's happened? Well, look, what happened is that they then, again, abandoned their principles. They, they again, uh, sort of capitulated to the left. And here's the problem, Alan. They can never win. The coalition can never win a competition to outgreen the Greens, for sure, and they can certainly never outgreen the Labor Party. And oh. this is a big mistake. You know, the man who brought a lump of coal into Parliament then signed up to net zero instead of having the moral courage to actually make the argument that still must be made. And I will, if, I, if I get to the Senate, Alan, I will always stand up for our uh, industries that export resources and particularly fossil fuels Economies around the world, particularly developing economies, need coal. They Definitely. need Definitely. gas. Definitely. And they will continue to buy it from someone. Yep. And if we shut these industries down, which is clearly coming like a freight train, whether it be with the Labor Party or the Coalition, we are doing ourselves a great Absolutely. Uh, disservice. National, I call we are it, costing jobs in the Hunter yeah. and, in, and in central Queensland. I call, it it a, I call it a national economic suicide. No, it is. You see, what have we learned from history? Now, Abbott's famous opposition to a carbon tax, won him landslide victories. But now the coalition of rubber-stamped Labor's policy are in all sorts of trouble. Doesn't anyone understand but, but, why? And, but, and it's not good enough. No. And, and that's the point, my point again, Alan, it will never be good enough because, no. you know, the, the Greens will always call for more and the Labor Party will always say that more should be done and, of course, use their usual political tactics where they just make these bizarre claims that nothing's been done. I mean, Australia, if you, if you care about reducing emissions, uh, Australia has done well. But, I mean... You know, why, Why, for example, here's another example of the lack of courage of our political leaders. If you believe in reducing emissions, then you must be absolutely prepared to back nuclear power. The, the Lib Dems are backing the repeal of the ban on nuclear energy in this country. And Morrison had the opportunity only a few weeks ago, John Howard stood up and said in a speech or some points he was making that nuclear energy should be on the table. And Morrison shut that down, as did as did uh, Albanese, see, you know, within a heartbeat almost. You see, know, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, see, that's, you've got, that's cowardice, mate. You've, yeah, you've got these people opposing Frydenberg or in Sydney opposing Sharma and this woman Stegall in Warringah, and they keep calling them progressives. Campbell, they are regressive with the potential to send Australia economically backwards. 
Well, I, I believe that that's absolutely the case, of course, Alan, and I get really frustrated that people in the coalition will not make this argument. That is, if we want to live in inner city Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane and enjoy the great lifestyle and buy these neat things like, you know, mobile phones yeah. and you know, coffee that's imported from overseas and imported white goods and shiny new motor cars and all the stuff they get, how do we earn our living in the world, Alan? Sort of giving people advice about uh, how to... Uh, run government or, uh, you know, as I, I, I on Q&A a few weeks ago, I was roundly criticised for, for questioning that Australia should be uh, as a priority for the Solomon Islands uh, program, our assistance program. You know, we gave them a gender diversity strategy, Alan, and, mm. you know, of course, I was howled down by the mob there. Mm. But, you know, how do we afford to do these things? And if those are our exports in the future, um you know, I mean, how do how do we do these things if we don't actually have a vibrant economy? And how do we get to live a lifestyle that we do if we don't export things the world wants? Good on you. Campbell, look, we've run out of time, as we always do, but I want to say to our viewers, I have said, and I'll be saying more prominently this week, this is a Senate election. Because if, as the polls suggest, we've got to face reality, the Albanese party opposition is going to be government. We need people like Campbell Newman in the Senate to stand up for common sense, the sorts of things he's talked about tonight. You've got to think very seriously in Queensland about this Senate vote. And here is a candidate, a man offering himself. He's got a million other things he could do. He's a successful businessman. But you've heard what he stands for here. And in the Senate, he will oppose the rubbish that may well come from the House of Representatives. Think carefully about your Senate vote. Campbell, good to talk to you and thank you for your time. Thanks, and, Alan. And good luck on Saturday. There he is, the Senate Appreciate candidate it. in Queensland, Campbell Newman. Well, look, see if you can get your head around this. The one issue you'll never hear discussed in this election or any election is most probably the biggest rort of all, public funding of election campaigns. Are you aware of this? Parties and candidates who receive more than 4% of the primary vote are entitled to public funding of an indexed amount per vote. That is, the amount goes up every six months. But firstly, changes were made under the Turnbull government whereby parties and candidates who received at least 4% of the vote get an automatic payment of $10,656, also indexed, and then $2.914 for every vote they receive. What are your maths like? Counting the House of Representatives and the Senate, the Coalition got over 11 million votes in 2019. That's 33 million. Taxpayers' money. Labor received reps and Senate in 2019 about 9 million votes. $27 million of taxpayers' money. The Greens received almost, reps and Senate, 3 million votes, 9 million of your money to them, the Greens. But because outfits like Bob Catter didn't receive 4% of the vote, his party gets nothing. One Nation received about 1.2 million votes, so that's almost 4 million. Michael Yabsley is a former federal treasurer of the Liberal Party and a minister in the New South Wales Griner government. He's described this public funding of election campaigns as an appalling unprincipled and largely unscrutinised free for all. Michael joins me. Michael, thank you for your time and your prosecution of this case. Can any case be made out for public funding of election campaigns? Absolutely not, Alan. Look, I, I've looked at this from, from every angle. Uh, part of that was prompted by 
several conversations I had with um, someone by the name of Rodney Cavalier, who interestingly, back in the 1980s, was, uh, by his own admission, an architect of the whole system of, of public funding. But look, it's been, it, to, to use Rodney's words, it has been debauched. Um, it is an absolute free-for-all. Um, it is basically without scrutiny. And, and there's a reason for that, Alan, and that is that it suits everyone, the major parties, the minor parties, the independents. In, you know, in 2019, the independents picked up a million dollars in public funding. And you can be sure of one thing, that will go north um, in, the, in the election that's being held mm. on Saturday. So, look, no, it's a rort. It's so, un- so, the, so the viewer... The people watching you now have been bombarded with political advertising without knowing that they are in fact are in fact paying for it. Well, look, that that is that is the case. Of course, you know, I I talk to a lot of people and they say, oh, I I'd, I'd have thought um, that government should be paying to run the election. Well, of course they should, but the election campaign and the election itself are two very very different things. Um, you know, the, ele- the election itself is all about making sure the ballot boxes are there, that the, that the polling booths are open, that they're, you know, that they're run according to the rules that govern elections. But the election campaign, as we know, is, um, is, is a, a, a contest often bitterly fought between the parties and the candidates, and the taxpayer should have zero role in picking up the mm. tab. But you take someone like Clive Palmer, who's worth a fortune, but he will get, if he gets 4% of the vote, $10,656 of taxpayers' money and $2.9 for every vote his party receives. Well, it's, it's, it's obscene. And he's got a wealth of about $20 billion. That's exactly right, about $20 billion. Um, and, look, you know, all I would say in relation to Clive... And, look, I don't actually blame it's Clive. Not Clive. Fault. It's no. not his fault. It's not his fault. No. As we know, people, people will queue to get benefits if benefits are, are made available. And Clive just happens to be one of them. He happens to be the wealthiest. Um, but it just underlines what a rort it is. Mm. And I would hope Clive would have the decency to donate what he gets from public funding um, to a charity. You've called this an appalling, unprincipled and largely unscrutinised free-for-all and the only loser is the taxpayer. So all these snouts are allowed in the political trough because the system, as you said, benefits every political player, every party and every candidate. So politicians shut up about it. And there there is something that can only be described as a conspiracy of silence. You referred to the fact that I was Federal Treasurer of the Liberal Party, uh, which I was. Alan, I have been privy to the discussions about what is said, certainly between the major parties, to make sure that no one lays a hand on the goose that lays the golden egg. <laughs> the goose and this keeps is, laying. I mean, as, as, <laughs> as geese go, this is the biggest, fattest goose in town. <laughs> yes. And a goose, the goose has been laying for 40 years. It's, it's been laying for 40 years. And, of course, the other line that you can't, help, uh, you can't avoid is it's the gift that keeps giving. Mm. What and should the be gift done? gets bigger every time. What should well, be done? look, I'm I'm saying that the broom should be put through the whole regime of political fundraising and election funding. Look, there there is a, a serious a serious credibility and transparency issue in relation to the way money is raised. I'm saying that 
that political parties, it should be mandated. And look, I, I, I'm the last one to advocate, you know, let's have another bit of legislation here or there to, to, to fix problems. But I think this is sufficiently serious. It, it, it casts a very dark shadow over the integrity of the democratic system. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, represents an enormous cost. So yeah. I'm saying that political parties, a bit like major charities, and, and not so major charities, should be relying on what is called in the trade the low-value, high-volume means of fundraising. Mm. Everyone's familiar with, with fundraising programs, yep. you know, to sponsor a child for $30 a month. Mm. Now, the truth is it, it, hundreds of millions of dollars are raised in that way. And, of course, what that does is mm. it puts the organisations that are mm. fundraising like that in touch with a very large number of people who are contributing small mm. amounts of money. Mm. For political parties, it's the it other is, way around. They're in, they're in touch with a small number of people mm. donating large amounts yeah. of money, yeah. and it's wrong. You've said this is the political equivalent of the filthy, dirty family secret that's been kept under wraps for decades. Well, it, it, it is, and it's been there in, in broad daylight for everyone to see. I mean, I, you know, I, I've described myself as poacher-turned-gamekeeper. I have no difficulty doing that. I'd rather come to a, something remedial uh, belatedly than not at all. Yes. But, you know, I, together with others, and I mentioned Rodney Cavalier, there are a lot of people, but you won't hear a squeak from, anyone from, from, the, from the political parties from the beneficiaries. And, and, and the beneficiaries. Absolutely. Michael, keep at it. I've been going on about this for years as well, so have you. Thank you for your time tonight, by the way. But to our viewers out there, if a political party or candidate gets 4% of the vote, they'll automatically get a payment of $10,656, automatic, and $2.914 per vote, and it's your money. It's called the public funding of election campaigns. What do you think? Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Michael, thank you for your time. We'll catch up. Thank you, Alan. Michael Yabsley. Well, look, before we go, I really do shake my head when I read some of the headlines coming out of this campaign. The latest is this whole, let's allow people to tap into their super to buy a home. Now, I'm sorry, but only someone who's economically illiterate could believe this is a red-hot idea. Yet this was Scott Morrison's big headline coming out of the weekend, the argument that first-home buyers should be allowed to access their super to pay for a deposit. An idea, I might add, that's been swirling around for years. The so-called economic managers should know better than announcing such a policy. It has come to the 11th hour, and just like a Federal Integrity Commission, the Prime Minister probably has received some poll which says that voters are fed up with property prices. So this is the quick fix, the Band-Aid solution. With respect, Mr Morrison's had six years to work this out, both as Prime Minister and Treasurer. The fundamental issue is that you'll never help someone in the market, into the market, by giving them more money. It only inflates the price. The same goes with subsidising childcare. You give more people more money and the price of childcare goes up. One other thing, how can any responsible government with any conscience at all allow young people or couples to go ahead with purchasing a home they cannot afford? It's the same with the announcement in the budget that the coalition would allow people to purchase a home with a 5% deposit and single parents only a 2% deposit. Who has dreamt this up? A single parent could buy an $800,000 brand new home in Sydney, 
putting only $16,000 down. Now, I'm sorry, we're kidding. That is a debt of $784,000. Saddling people with such debt is not guaranteed home ownership. It's guaranteed debt for life. The McKellar MP, Jason Falinski, and the outgoing Benelong MP, John Alexander, are the only two sensible Liberals on this matter. Supply is the issue. In other words, build more housing stock and the price will go down. That's the simple economics attached to housing affordability. Fix the supply side and you'll fix the pricing issue, so long as local and state governments don't stand in the way of development. As the Liberal member for McKellar, Jason Falinski, has said, we haven't been building enough in Australia for over five decades. What stock we have is allocated very inefficiently. He said we have a lot of empty nesters and a lot of people in apartments who, frankly, should be in larger, detached housing, unquote. Stephen Jones is Labor's shadow minister for superannuation. He has slammed the Liberals' new housing scheme, calling it a seriously dumb policy. Stephen Jones said it'll blow up the housing market in Australia, sending already record housing prices even higher. He said no wonder every serious Liberal Party thinker has kicked this out of the park. He said if we want to make housing more affordable, we just have to build more houses. It's as simple as that, unquote, and so it is. The Liberals are in desperate need of some soul-searching if this is the best that they can come up with. What are your thoughts? Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. That's it from me. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock on adh.tv. Good night.